Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 17th, 2022. Joining for me, I have the whole group today. I'm so excited to have the whole group back on a single podcast. Stuart Walpin, who writes for Popular Mechanics, U.S. News, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other wonderful publications. Rob Pegarero, who writes frequently on tech policy for Wirecutter, PC Magazine, and USA Today. And we've got even John Quain calling in from Vermont, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. Gentlemen, how are all of you? Lovely. Any surprises about the Super Bowl? Let's just get that out of the way. I'm sure you watched it. Um, I thought the Larry David commercial, by the way, for that crypto company was probably the, the most humorous one. I chuckled you're, at that. You're skipping ahead, Mark. <laughs> I, I thought the – I didn't think the Facebook meta VR commercial would be quite as awful as it was. But holy <laughs> crap. Like, who wants to live in that future? Absolutely not. Leave me out of it. Hey, at least you don't have to wear pants. <laughs> <laughs> We're on Zoom right now. How do you know I'm wearing pants? You know, I might have to find the Super Bowl. I was just watching, making fun of the commercials. Which ones hit? Which ones missed? And yep. there were a few misses. <laughs> you know, you're skipping ahead. I know, I know. I won't do. I won't do that. Okay, so let's uh, let us bring up the slides on the screen over here. And the, the first topic I want to hit. I mean, this is not completely brand new. Um, brand new news because you have been able to kind of run Chrome OS on a, on, a, on a Windows PC in kind of like a virtual fashion, but kind of interesting now that Google's officially doing this. And to me, the broader question is, is that it's a philosophical question. You know, it used to be really important whether you had an x86 PC or in the, you know, uh, and you could only run Windows and, you know, virtualization really didn't exist. This is going back, you know, a few years, but are we getting to the point now where, it really doesn't matter what you know uh, chipset architecture you're using because all these operating systems are available in virtual formats. Now you may not get the performance that you uh, would want to get if 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 the uh, if the virtual operating system is not running on a real um, high speed um, uh, chipset. But let me start with John. John, what's your thought about that philosophical question first, and then you know, do you think this is even relevant, or it's you know? Any, I mean. Any- it's interesting that they're doing something like this that you uh, it's really saving old PCs for yeah. you know, in a way. Um, a lot of us who are stuck with Windows, I mean, let's face it, that's if we're in technology, we have to have at least some machines running on Windows. Um, and, and it sort of saves us from going to Windows 11 or sort of being forced out. It's, it, it's an interesting move. Um, I don't know how many people will do it and see how easy it is. But yeah, the, the platforms have mattered, you know, and since the dawn of the internet, less and less and less. Yes, really. Right. You know, and um, it, nobody's really ever capitalized on that since Microsoft totally squashed Netscape. Um, but uh, that was kind of the idea. But it's it'll be interesting to see how many people do. I, I, I've got, you know, it occurred to me right away. I've got old machines kicking around. And I thought, you know what? It's in beta now, but when it's kind of out of beta, I bet I'll probably put a couple of them on it. Yeah. You, you know what's interesting is that, and I, I want to tee this question up for Stuart next, is that 
you know, one of the virtues of the M1 um, silicon from Apple is that not only can you run Mac OS apps, but you can also run um, uh, iPhone apps, you know, and that's actually surprisingly useful because there are apps that run on the iPhone that are not available on Mac OS and they kind of kind of sort of work most of the time. But there's some versatility that you get. But, you know, let me address that question to Stuart. So do you think it's a big deal or you think this is kind of, ah, okay, you know, I don't really run Chrome OS. I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not a student. I'm not, you know, education obviously is a huge market for Chrome OS. But do, do you see any value for you in your day-to-day -day, um, usage of your I don't think this, I don't really think that this is a consumer move. I think this is much more, as you mentioned, education and especially on the enterprise side. Um, this operating system, which is Google Chrome Flex, uh, is really designed to allow companies who have fleets of computers out there to not have to replace old units for another couple of years and allows. And, and it's also a positive for Google because if companies take their old Intel based Windows PC, you know, 2016, 2017 models, that sort of thing, and convert them using this, they get two or three more years worth out of them, but also Google gets all these new customers that they didn't have before. Um, in terms of interoperability, this version of Flex, as far as I understand, is not Android compatible. So while you'll have to, you'll be able to get access to Google Play Store for desktop op, um, applications, you won't be able to grab Android applications. The other caveat, of course, is that some equipment, there's a long, long list of compatible equipment that's available on the website from the company that Google bought that's allowing them to do yes. this or something. I don't remember the name of the company, but it's a mm -hmm. very, very long list. And Google makes it, I don't think very plain, but it, there are some operations that will not work depending upon the model of the PC. So for instance, in, on some PCs, the webcam won't work. You yes. know, the audio output won't work. So there, it's in beta. It doesn't do Android. There are some caveats depending upon the piece of equipment. But I think it's the best news is for um, enterprise customers who have fleets of laptops up there that they'd rather not go through the expense of having to replace every couple of years. Right. So, Mr. Pegarero, will you be doing this? Will, you, will the Pegarero has to all be installed now? Somewhere on this desk, I have a very, very old ThinkPad X120e, which does appear on that list of supported hardware as something like should work with some issues, which is a computer I haven't turned on for years. Uh, I'd actually put a copy of Linux on it to see what Ubuntu looked like. And I haven't turned the thing on in two years. If it still does, I mean, at least I'll, I'll put uh, this cloud-ready version of Chrome OS on a flash drive, plug it in and see how it works. I think there is a lot of potential for this. Um, not just in businesses, but also lots of older computers where lots of people just use the computer for the web browser. And right. so this gets you a much more secure browser than anything you could run on like an eight or 10 year old computer where, you know, you're not going to run a current version of uh, Chrome or maybe not even Firefox, which of course, I'm glad JQ mentioned Netscape. This whole concept is really Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson's revenge. He was the judge in the Microsoft <laughs> case, wrote the findings of fact, pointing out that if Netscape could actually become a layer of middleware in which you could run applications, that would threaten Microsoft's dominance. And now this is exactly what Google is doing with older computers that Microsoft has understandably lost interest in because it wants to make Windows 11 run on a 12-year-old computer. Right.
Right. The only caveat on all of this, which which I haven't seen mentioned anywhere, is old computers run old Wi-Fi, and this is a this is a cloud-based operating system. So a lot of these older computers may have, you know, only N Wi-Fi on them, which may not work very well with the cloud-based operating system. They may not find it as fast as they do, you know, more modern computers with Wi-Fi five. Right. No, I think that's a very, very good point is that um, for anybody who's ever used uh, uh, Chrome OS, I mean, the reality is, is that if you don't have a, a reasonably fast connection, it's not the greatest experience. So no, so I, I think that's a great point. Well, we'll see what happens with that. Let's hit the next topic here as I click to the next slide. Um, this is your baby, uh, Rob. Um, and I want to caveat Well, here's the thing. I, I think the word shutdown which is the word that you use when you emailed me. So I'm, I'm taking no responsibility for using that word. But <laughs> AT&T's word too. <laughs> well, but they've been kind of, uh, AT&T and others have been kind of signaling and telegraphing that 3G, you know, um, call it 3G support, 3G um, coverage was co is coming to an end. And obviously the big problem with that, there's a lot of you know, uh, devices, you know, security alarms, um, uh, other types of, uh, uh, you know, relatively small, you know, you don't really need fantastic bandwidth to operate these devices um, that are obviously will need to transition to something else. And there are companies out there doing kind of stopgap solutions. But Rob, why don't you give a kind of an overview of the situation and, you know, your, your thoughts on, um, you know, how people are going to fill the gap? Yes. If, if anybody is watching this or listening to it with uh, an iPhone 3G, <laughs> you should definitely get that looked at. <laughs> uh, wants to shut down its 3G network as they shut down their 2G network a few years ago and basically reform that spectrum into nationwide 5G coverage, which they need, which will benefit more people. And there are two parts of it. One is the old phones. And in that respect, we seem to be in decent shape because my understanding is if you have one of these phones that is liable to be affected by, they actually call it the 3G sunset. Sounds much more poetic than shutdown. Um, then you should have no doubt that you need to get a new one. You can go into any AT&T right. store. You'll have some free or cheap replacement for it. Uh, the issue is with all the non-phone devices, alarm systems and car telematics. And the really tricky things are things, I, I talked to the CEO of a company that one of the things they do is, you know, medic alert bracelets, where mm -hmm. you have to go into someone's house, which of course has been rather difficult for much of the last two years and actually replace it. And, They'd like more time. AT&T's most recent statement just Tuesday was, uh, we're, we're now working around this with roaming agreements. And this guy said, that that's like, first of all, most of this stuff is not on a platform where the roaming's automatic. It's not like this thing will just jump onto T-Mobile's 3G if AT&T pays for it. Switch, right. And he said, also, AT&T wants a roaming agreement for each of these particular lines of business. And he's like, we can't do that. And in less than a week, February 22nd is the latest shutdown slash sunset of 3G. So it is a big mess. Um, you know, we might not have been in this mess if we hadn't had, you know, the last two years of all of this pandemic stuff. Um, if there'd been a little more communication, um, if there hadn't been a chip shortage, but you know, it, it is, if, if you thought, the 5G C-band drama wasn't enough excitement in Spectrum policy. Well, <laughs> come sit down and, uh, you know, pull up a chair. We've got some more excitement for you right here. I'm not sure how it's going to work out. Uh, with everyone else, it's less of a problem. 
T-Mobile isn't shutting down its 3G until July, and they don't have this Internet of Things business that AT&T does. Right. And Verizon isn't doing it until the end of the year. And so no right. one's complaining about them at all. This is this is an AT&T story, and um, I, I'm sure it's fun for everyone involved. Yeah, so let me pull Stuart into this, because the, the interesting thing about this is that Yes, it is a 3G problem. There are old cell phones out there that still use the 3G, um, uh, 3G networks. But the reality is, I think it's a bigger problem, though, for people, uh, for, again, applications and usage models like security systems, banking systems, which have um, uh, any type of uh, systems that have automatic uh, connectivity uh, requirements. You know, the bandwidth may not be particularly onerous from a, from a speed standpoint. Uh, but you, you can always count on a 3G signal. And there are companies out there like UMA, for example. I didn't know if you knew, guys know this, but UMA has an interesting solution precisely for this problem where essentially you're, you, you, it's, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's kind of a hub with, a, with an LTE connection. And you can yep. plug in VoIP, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, POTS lines or, or, or connections, which a lot of these devices still use, and you can transition to LTE. But still, what, what's your thoughts on this? Do you think this is kind of a... Do you, you, do you put this in the category, well, hey, you've had several years to transition over, and if you get now caught with your pants down, it's not our fault. <laughs> I mean, where, where do you come at, at this on, uh, on this topic? Well, that whole thing, if you don't do it, it's your own fault sort of thing. I mean, a lot of the applications that use the 3G backbone are, as Rob said, like medical alerts, uh, yes. OnStar, uh, emergency emergency system. Yeah. Really, I mean, if this was just some old phones that you want to upgrade, you shrug your shoulders, AT&T, greed, they just want you to buy a new phone. All right, you can accept that. But this is life and death kind of stuff. You that can't say, Granny, this is your fault for not keeping up on spectrum policy. Right. I mean, I, kind, I, I think I kind of keep up on that sort of stuff. But and when I saw first saw that headline, I went, wait, what? Um, you know, so I mean, I was, I, I kept, this is going to sound really awful long, but I kept flitting back to Dr. Strangelove and there's a scene <laughs> talking in the war rooms is that, you know, what's the use of a doomsday machine if you don't tell anybody in the rush, oh, we were going to announce <laughs> it. You're like surprises. <laughs> it, yes, exactly. This is not something you keep a secret. This is stuff that you really got to get out there and tell the public about that this is happening. I mean, I don't own any of these devices. I don't think I do. God, I hope not. Mm. Um, but so I don't know how much outreach AT&T has done to its customers, whether or not the companies who use this technology has reached out to customers. But the fact that I, somebody who pays attention to this kind of stuff and who saw this headline and went, what? Tells me that they did, as Rob said, did not do a great job in communications and letting people know this was going to happen. And considering the life and death consequences that can occur here, I think, you know, I think this is irresponsible at least for right. for not for AT&T not at least doing a much broader reach out on this John your thoughts John well it's on purpose right they didn't want, the company doesn't want to tell anybody it's doing this you know they they're they've just done a cost benefit analysis and said hey this is what we want to do and don't tell anybody why should i uh they'll just get upset so I mean, that is kind of the strategy, but I agree that the concern is, you know, all these um, embedded devices, you know, we, we used to call embedded devices. So how many telematic systems are out there 
um, and uh, other systems that are relying on the 3G backbone. Um, right. They must have an idea that they can weather that storm or deal with it, but it, it's definitely irritating. And it sort of reminds us all that um, so many devices require that kind of cellular wireless connectivity. You know, what springs to mind to me right now are charging stations, you know, that are going to be ubiquitous in the United States at some point. And they're all 4G now. And the talk is, well, should they be 5G? Well, they can't be 5G because you can't reach them, right? There's no way to cellular connection can reach that far and 5G is too short. So now what do you do? What if they cut us off? Does that mean that part of the infrastructure goes down? I mean, well, you, you know, you know, and maybe Rob, you could probably shed some light on this. Am I mistaken, or isn't some of the um, um, the gas stations, not all gas stations, but certain swaths of the of um, gas stations across the country, because they they use um, to fill yeah. to notify or not, not a, they, or distribution of gas. They use uh, you know very. You know, at night it uploads. Hey, we need you know ten thousand gallons of um, you know a certain brand of gasoline, and you know happily the trucks arrive. I mean, am I? I th I'm pretty sure some of those networks are three G based, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe. I mean, there's definitely the the guy I talked to. People I've talked to said that there are issues. You know, some vehicles you don't care. I talked to one analyst who said, you know, yeah, BMW sent me a notice. I need to have this fixed on my my car where they already replaced a 2G module with a 3G one. And the last time it was a whole day out of, I, I couldn't do anything else. And I don't really care the car's old, so who cares? But if it's right. things like managing truck fleets or, you know, processing payments at gas pumps, yeah, it's a problem. Um, but unfortunately, people should have known a little bit better because if you remember, this is going back like 10 years when analog cellular got shut down, there were a bunch of cars with OnStar, which were left permanently, I guess, off star because they only had analog cellular radios and there was no fix. And at that point, people rightfully pointed to GM saying like, you know how long people keep cars. <laughs> what are you doing only having, since digital cellular has been a thing in the US since I'm gonna date myself, Sprint Spectrum was a thing in DC in like 1994. 95. So yeah, there's certainly responsibility all around. Um, uh, and yeah, th this, this is going to be a mess. I would guess that there will be some last minute reprieve just because in most of these use cases, it's not a big deal, but if someone falls and help is not actually requested, that is a big deal. And that's a problem. Right. And I think AT&T can probably stand you know, to, to push, I mean, given how long they've pushed back their C-band launch, I, I think they'll probably relent a little bit to save face. Hopefully not until after I file the USA Today column I on the subject. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I, you know, my, my closing comment on this would be is that at the end of the day, and I, I sympathize with what Stuart's saying, consumers do have to take some level of responsibility um, for understanding when technology transitions, I mean, it's, you know, there's no technology that's around forever. And I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, Stuart, I know you're not saying that, but at the same time, there are many, many people I know that ignore all kinds of warnings. You know, you, you tell them 50 things and it just goes over their head. And no question, manufacturers, carriers have a responsibility to message that. Uh, to John's point, I think they have a vested interest in trying to push people <laughs> from 3G devices to, uh, to uh, faster band devices. But uh, you know, I this has been going on for a long time. I just hope people uh, get it. You know, frankly, so they're not caught with um, 
caught with their pants down, so to speak. The people who are most likely to be impacted by it are the least likely to have. That's true. That is absolutely true. And and so, um, yeah. So, AT&T, get on the ball, AT&T. You need to knock (laughs) on everybody's door and tell them. Uh, Stuart, this is your kind of little uh, baby here. Um, we talked about the Larry David commercial before, but uh, l- let's, let me uh, get your perspective on uh, the hits and misses at the Super Bowl uh, regarding EVs versus cryptocurrency, because those are the, obviously the two big uh, themes. Well, the I don't know the name of the company. And quite frankly, it's very funny. I was sitting with my wife watching the game, and she said, oh, I really love that commercial. I don't remember which one it was. Oh, I really love that commercial. And I said, well, what was the product? And she just looked at me and I went, (laughs) that's always the big problem with a lot of these very, very clever commercials that you remember the commercial, but not the company. So, for instance, on the crypto side, I knew it was a crypto ad because I read about it later. But that bouncing QR code, (laughs) I thought my I thought there was something wrong with the broadcast. And I fast forwarded (laughs) because I was behind in the game and I spotted the crypto and went, oh. Big deal. And I just moved right past it. I literally thought there was something wrong with the broadcast. Um, I had no idea it was a commercial. The Larry David. I love the Larry David commercial. I have no idea what product they were hawking. I know it was great. Well, and the, and the, you know me, Mr. Mr. Marketing. I don't care how great the ad is. If you didn't remember the name of the product. Right. What's the point? What's the point of a clever ad if you can't remember the product? And I think this is the basic mistake that almost every single one of these clever advertising companies make every single year is that they make these great ads that have absolutely nothing to do with the product, and therefore nothing for us to remember. What the, I mean, for instance, I remember the Snickers commercials with the celebrities. Um, and know, white, that white thing tackled, yeah. That was they tied Snickers right into that, right into the ad. But, but by so, the, but by so, let me tell you, if, if you flash back to, to, I think it was 1999 or 2000, and they and GoDaddy ran these commercials, you know, that were always about women scantily dressed, and they played up Patrick. Patrick, right? And and GoDaddy was successful in getting that as a brand out there, but they had lots of problems. People couldn't identify what the hell is GoDaddy associated with, right? Well, they knew what the company was; they just didn't know what the company did. Did well, that's a problem. Difference between I know that's a very clever ad, but I have no idea who ran it. I don't even know the name of the company. John, John, your thoughts. Right. Well, this is this is my idea too. So I was with uh, people who are, who are much younger, <laughs> and they knew, uh, you know, the QR code thing. But okay. they all, but they all said they were all in their twenties, and they all said, "Who's going to point their phone at the TV?" So if they said that, and they're in their twenties, all right, uh, probably not the greatest idea. Um, also. <laughs> You know, just coming off some heavy losses in Bitcoin and, uh, you know, criminal activity with these people being busted, laundering money and stealing from vaults, you know, cryptocurrency vaults. All that stuff was just a few days before this ad. So the timing wasn't so good on the EV side. Also, some of these these uh, my friends who are in their twenties, they uh, said, "Oh yeah, there's there's a Silverado. Like there's one of those on my block. I just saw one on my block, and I was like, uh, it's not going to be here, so it can't be on your block because it's not going to exist till next year. There isn't anything in production." She and I and I so I looked at her and then I said, "Oh, Rivian," and she went, "Yeah, yeah, it's a Rivian." So I mean, it, it was helpful for the category. 
it was great to sort of promote Rivian, which is the competition. But it, it's just an interesting, uh, interesting take. I saw a thought on that. I was like, wow, they spent so much money on an ad that for a product that's not going to come out till when is it coming out? I don't know. Um, anyway, that they're they're very interesting reaction to them. To your point, though, all the I thought they were all boring ads. You know, there was none of that Tostitos time machine or the Betty White thing or just nothing really grabbed me from the whole thing. You didn't like the Larry David commercial? Yeah, it was okay. I kind of <laughs> meh, meh. <laughs> you know, what I thought was funny about that ad before I, I want to get Rob's reaction is what was funny was when they went to the that to the um, Sony Walkman. Well, they never call it a Sony Walkman. The last thing. Um, the last piece, right? You think they would have done something around the iPod with a, with a character playing Steve Jobs, you know, saying, "Hey, this is called the uh, iPod, and you could put a million songs on it," and that that would have been entertaining. And I, I and I and I listen. I know how advertising agencies think. I'm sure that was that was keyed up, but may, uh, or teed up. But I, I'm I have a feeling that they probably said, "Yeah, you know, maybe we want to make fun of Apple or Steve Jobs' memory." What do I figure <laughs> that was part of the discussion? Rob, what's your what were your thoughts? So yeah, the the Coinbase ad. It's funny that that I did find that effective, but not in the way they intended. Because I saw that, I'm like, "What's the QR code?" Then I'm like, "Oh, Coinbase, sure, right, whatever." Then I saw on Twitter, people were like, "Ha ha ha, Coinbase's ad has crashed." I'm like, "Oh, let me see if it's up right now." And I saw, and they're like, "Oh, the ad was if you sign up, you'll get 15 bucks in Bitcoin." I'm like, "Well, for research purposes, I have to do that." So I'm checking my account now. I am down 25 cents already. This is going great. <laughs> Bob, I've always knew you were a no, gambler. This is not going to pay for my kids' college tuition, that's for sure. No. Um, as for the the EV ads, I was struck number one. Every car ad up until that Toyota keeping up with the Joneses thing was for an electric car. Mm -hmm. And of the two, my favorites were uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Zeus for the uh, BMW iX. And of course, as a native New Jerseyan of Italian descent, I loved the Sopranos homage. Yeah, I thought that was cute. Right. I thought that was cute. You know. I had a bone to pick actually with the Larry David ad when they <laughs> when he was with Thomas Edison with the right. light bulb. They presented it Thomas Edison from like 1920. Right. The light right. bulb that Thomas Edison should have had black hair and and yes. should have been 30 years younger. Thank you for that historical uh, detail. Uh, that, yep. that, that, that's hey, little things, little things. Details uh, matter. Another bit of Jersey history right there. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Let's hit the last topic that we've got here. Let's talk about, you know, Stuart, this was your baby, and it's an important one, um, this whole sideload bill that's kind of bouncing around in Congress right now. And the two words, unintended consequences, come to mind. Uh, but I am sure Stuart's going to opine on that. So, Stuart, get me, uh, take us home on this. Well, the bill that we're talking about, and it's a tongue twister, the Open App Markets App Act. You see, it's a tongue twister. I can't even damn say it. It's, it was introduced uh, last August uh, by Blumenthal, Klobuchar, and Martha uh, Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, Republican. It's really short. I mean, the thing is maybe three pages long. It's not that long, and it's very, very direct. Which is, which so, is remarkable for legislation. Remarkable. I was stunned at how short. It took me uh, two minutes to read the, the thing. But the line that's in it, and I want to make sure I get this, and there are a couple of things in here that I want to talk about, is that one of, one of, the, one of the laws that they want to put in here is that 
Um, they need to allow or provide the readily accessible means for users of an operating system to install third-party apps or app stores through means other than the app store. And I think the key, and I think what Apple is getting its panties in a wad over is it, it, I think that they think that they're going to be forced to open up iOS. And what I read from this is, is that this opens a huge door for Apple. And what they could easily do is, is simply do a toggle switch in settings that allow a user to decide whether or not they will allow it or not. And then Apple could say, as a warning, if you turn this on, if you turn on your phone, the version of iOS that will allow you to sideload, you will void your warranty. There is nothing in this legislation that would stop them from doing that. The legislation is very, very nonspecific about how to do it, just that you have to make it available. The other side of this, which I thought was interesting, is that there are no criminal penalties involved. All of the penalties are civil, which means that this is almost nothing at all that somebody's going to have to sue. And Apple's got the deepest pockets in the world. Um, And so um, the fact that this doesn't have any criminal relief or something other than federal injunctive relief, I thought was a little surprising. Well, it just goes to show that the Apple lobby is very persuasive. In well, apparently not because this is still in there and Apple hates well, it. But, but, if they know, but here's the thing. If Apple knows this is a fait accompli, it's going to happen. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure, but it could because it's one of the, um, it's one of the rare bipartisan. pieces of bipartisan, bipartisan legislation in Washington right now. Um, the, I, I suspect Apple, the fact that there's only, um, there's really no criminal um, uh uh, implications for this that they may get this may get to a pay the two cents type of mentality every time that there's a you know problem with that rob what's your what's your thoughts on this uh i think apple needs to think hard about how its own choices are making something like this inevitable uh around the world other governments are saying like no apple you cannot compel developers to hand over 30 percent of every right transaction, mm-hmm. at least every first year subscription transaction, just because the app is on an iPhone. Like that's not an existence tax you get to keep. And Apple's response has been not just contemptuous, but stupid. So the Netherlands, Diddy apps, I didn't know this, uh, they have to fork over that 30% Apple tax. The Netherlands said you have to allow, you know, in-app payment processing through other means. Apple said, okay, that's fine. If you want to do that, you have to pay us 27%, which is like, you do that when you want to have a regulator. But, 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 Rob, but yeah. Rob, let me stop you for a second. All fairness to Apple, and don't get me wrong, you know I have kind of a love-hate relationship with Apple, like many people do. You know, Apple would say that 30% fee is for marketing, for qualification. You know, you run the app through the store. We make sure that it's virus-free. There's things that you get for that. So it's not purely a t- – I mean, I know that others – But in that case, they should that. demand – that people who offer for free apps with no in-app purchase pay for the privilege of being on the app store, which they don't. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that argument also neglects third-party apps add a huge amount of value to the iPhone. You know, how Mm -hmm. how many third-party apps show up in Apple? I agree. I agree. And I think Apple should recognize that they ultimately are putting themselves in a bad spot when they're Mm -hmm. the sole determinant of what programs can be installed on a large scale on an iPhone that is a switch that every totalitarian thug in the world is going to lean on. Certainly the Chinese do, the Russians do. And 
Android, at least you do have that opt-out switch and it does come with a bunch of scary dialogues. It doesn't have the void your warranty thing, but my understanding is it gets pretty close. Uh, and I think there should be ways to get around that. Certainly on this Mac here, I can install random apps off the internet and it, I seem to be doing okay. Except, um, except because I have a Mac as well, as you know, yeah. you know, when you try to download an app, it will there you have to you have to jump through a couple of hurdles you've got to go into settings and permit that to happen you just, it, it can't happen in a blind type of way you, you have to acknowledge so there's the gatekeeper that. authorization but still they're holding developers accountable you know you have to have a, a developer agreement the download is digitally signed etc which is not too different mm -hmm. from how it is in windows yes but that still means people don't have to transact business through the mac app store which has all sorts of issues that developers don't like and Rather than trying to perpetuate this 30% take, which developers hate, uh, I don't think users really care all that much, but Apple is looking greedy and looking thuggish, and it's not a good look. Uh, and it just greases the skids for something like this bill, which, well, yes, lack of criminal penalties means Tim Cook will not be frog-marched out of the, the Cupertino campus. <laughs> it's still bad if you have a law which you know outlaws how you've run your app store for the last uh, 15 or so years. John, take us some on this. What's your thoughts? Yeah, well, it's all, it's, you know, it's definitely, uh, if you're into conspiracy theories, you know, a lot of different states have tried to do laws like this. And many states got all the way to putting a vote on in it and the last minute were pulled. So mm -hmm. Apple has been sinking yeah, a yeah. lot of money into campaigns all over the United States to squash this. But it obviously clearly violates antitrust in the United States. No question about it. Right. And now you have the Biden administration, which is they've they've got people in there that are looking at vertical integration and antitrust. And this is clearly one of those cases where I can't play this game and they're the total gatekeeper and they take a cut of a vig of 30 percent. Right. So. That, that's clearly what's going on. That's got to end. Um, they're not marketing. What marketing has Apple done for an app? And I haven't seen any marketing. They don't run TV ads. They don't run radio ads. There's nothing on the internet. No, they, they, do a good, they do a pretty good job of marketing their own apps. Their own, their own you know, logo, yeah. But um, I'm not seeing it. So, um, and, and these are the guys who want to, like, keep making noises that they want to be in the automotive space so that would be pretty scary too yeah <laughs> so yeah i and I, i'm with rob on this too there there are international moves that are going to shut this down this is just not something that's going to last so uh inevitable yeah i was the case of apple needing to get out in front of it instead yeah. of continually yeah. reacting to what is always going to be bad news just yeah, get just, in front of it and do something before the ad, before the, well, ad, I, the act passes. You know, Stuart, I, I rarely praise you when you say something smart. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say that I think what you said a few moments ago in terms of, you know, Apple should probably provide kind of an escape hatch for this. Hey, if you want to download, sideload app, go for it. But here are the implications. You know, they're right. a private company. There's, they can do they can do whatever they want, you know, right. from a war. You know, you have to provide, jump over these steps to, you know, to take advantage of the virtues of a warranty. So I, I, I get that. The side, you know, again, you know, Apple's, I think, point of view would be on this is that sideloading apps can, there can be some really nefarious sideloading apps that could really, you know, muck things up. Oh, I and by the be. way, just so we're not picking on Apple here, this also applies to Google. Yes. So this is not just, I mean, primarily, obviously, since they have the most onerous terms, but this also will apply to Google as well. Yes. Yeah, but, but, 
the side loading danger is is a red herring right you can scan any app the os just scans it not a problem pretty simple basic straightforward stuff. and there have been enough scam apps that show up on the the ios right. app every day right. even ripping off the apps of better known ios developers so it's not right. like apple can say they've been running such a clean shop right exactly well, we, we gotta we got we're, we're over time as we always are <laughs> and um, i'll make sure that tim cook sees this podcast and none of you will get invited <laughs> to wwdc that's really good heaven in years right. <laughs> well guys thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast for a viewing and listening audience Thanks for making the Smart Tech Chat uh, for making sure that the Smart Tech Chat podcast was part of your day or commute, and please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe button at the end of today's podcast, and don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vina Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week, and thanks, guys, again. Thanks. Mm-hmm.